This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. COVID-19 devastated the Massachusetts healthcare system, a sector thought by most to being among our most competent and reliable in the world. Owing to the widespread onset of a little understood and highly contagious disease, patients who needed a doctor for what was deemed non-essential care were left for months at a time to wait and wonder when they could next see their doctor. While many hospitals, departments, and practices went dark, one bright light, direct care practices, stayed on, serving all its patients uninterrupted throughout the pandemic. These emerging care relationship alternatives to traditional insurance-based care offers patients a subscription-style relationship directly with doctors and care facilities. These patient-centered practices had already been using modern techniques, such as the use of telemedicine, text messages, and direct email communications with doctors long before the pandemic arrived. Celebrated as a less expensive and more responsive alternative to traditional insurance-based medicine, the COVID-19 epidemic additionally showed direct care practices to be more resilient in a crisis. As we assess all the ways this pandemic has and will transform our lives, will healthcare itself and the model in which it's provided be among the industries that will be forever disrupted by newer, more efficient alternatives? My guest today is Josh Archambault, Senior Fellow in Healthcare at Pioneer Institute. His newest research paper, entitled Direct Healthcare Agreements, A New Option for Patient-Centered Care, outlines how direct primary care practice relationships work, what accounts for their lower cost and better delivery of care, and what Massachusetts can do to encourage its citizens to embrace a system that reliably served its patients throughout this epidemic. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's Josh Archambault. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Josh Archambault of Pioneer Institute. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks so much for having me back, Joe. Now, Josh, you were on an earlier episode of Hubbonk, uh, one in which we had uh, Dr. Gold, a, a direct primary care physician, on to talk about his practice. I'd like to, now that we're nearly a year into the pandemic, talk about how those practices fared during this pandemic. But for the benefit of those listeners who have never heard of direct primary care practices, uh, let's start there. What are direct primary care practices and what do they provide? Sure. So in essence, just give an analogy for people to maybe think a little bit about it. It's a little bit like a gym membership or Netflix membership. You pay usually a monthly fee directly to a provider to an agreed list of services. So for direct primary care, it's going to be those kind of bread and butter primary care visits, checkups. Um, But what's a little bit different and maybe unusual is most of the direct primary care doctors uh, have been using telehealth for years. Uh, there, it's very common for them to text with you, to email back and forth, to be in touch uh, with you. If you have any medical questions, they spend a lot more time with you typically, usually upwards of an hour for every visit. Uh, there's no wait times. Usually you can get a same day or next day appointment. So the actual patient experience looks a little bit different because of this direct relationship. And so it, it, it as you talk to patients or providers who engage in these direct relationships, they 
frequently call it a win-win for both of them. So uh, in a traditional model, I have a relationship with my insurance company. I buy insurance and that insurance company tells me which doctors and which hospitals I can use. Uh, in this new model, uh, you're dealing directly with your doctor. It sounds like a, a better model right at the beginning. Um, how comprehensive is this relationship? Uh, can I get those same medicines I could get in a traditional relationship from my direct primary care? Can he give me anything I, I may need uh, medicine-wise? Yeah, so it's it's a tad hard to answer this question. As we talk to a lot of different direct healthcare providers, they all look a tiny bit different, but obviously for primary care in particular, they, they look generally they're in the same ballpark. You know, the way that it's been described to us and what we found in our research is by and large for the vast majority of patients for a direct primary care relationship, they can cover 80 to 90% of what typical patients need from those with chronic conditions to young people. It's it's really quite comprehensive. They typically are able to do some basic blood work in office. And if they don't have basic services like x-rays, imaging, all that sorts of things, they often have great direct relationships with providers in your community. So in the paper and the research that we released, we often looked at access to prescription drugs or to labs. And I mean, it's almost unbelievable the price differences that you're seeing for some of these things when you have these direct relationships. I mean, things like things that would normally cost around $200 under our current model are being accessed for $10, for instance, because of these direct relationships, whether it be drugs or, or CT scans or others. And so for the vast majority of patients for direct primary care, it, it checks all the boxes that they need. And I think the, the point of the paper was to say direct primary care has proven to be a successful model, both during the pandemic and before the pandemic, but there's actually an opportunity here to move beyond that model to any direct healthcare relationship, whether it's a dentist, whether it's mental health provider, chiropractor, any, any situation where a patient could benefit from an ongoing relationship, uh, that could be a win-win for both providers and patients. Now, you talk about cost often in, in your paper, but uh, forgive me if I'm thinking it's a, if I've got my own personal doctor now instead of a, a relationship with an insurance company, that sounds inherently expensive or something that was made for the wealthy, almost like a, what we've heard concierge service. Is, is direct primary care something, though it does save money versus the traditional model, is having my own doctor on speed dial, isn't that for the wealthy or is this uh, for everybody? You know, I, that Joe, you, you've hit on something that we frequently hear, like how, how could this possibly be affordable? And I think some of the confusion might come from people reading the stories in the past about concierge medicine, which is a little bit different. And in essence, just to give uh, listeners a, a, an idea, concierge medicine is typically you're paying a doctor a retainer, then you pay them every time you see them. That's not what these direct healthcare relationships are. These direct healthcare relationships are, and as we dug into this and talked to individual providers, just one local example, uh, Cornerstone Family Medicalists in Garner, Massachusetts, husband and wife uh, physicians, their fees were $80 for a couple a month or $100 for a family. Now, what might be surprising is that's for people who are paying the, paying the full rate, but for people, seniors who are on Medicare, they give a reduced rate of $40 a month. For those that are on Medicaid, they usually have it a sliding scale for people to pay less. They give out student memberships. They will often do loads of charity care. I think we were surprised by how often these practices, quite frankly, for lack of a better phrase, were blue collar uh, in their orientation. A lot of folks that could not afford other, the, the typical deductibles that they see for plans were seeking out these new direct arrangements because 
they were having so many problems, whether it be cost or others in the traditional healthcare system. So these things are actually surprisingly affordable. And we have found that across the board as we talk to a bunch of different direct providers here in Massachusetts. So the uh, economist to me says, okay, if it's uh, less expensive, I must, uh, it must give me less uh, benefit. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, uh, my, my direct care provider may be there, uh, but I got to get it on a long line. Uh, your paper actually observed the opposite of what one in, would intuitively think is the case. In fact, doctors actually spend more time with each patient and uh, uh, see their patients more frequently. Uh, that, uh, that seems... Uh, counterintuitive. Is this true? Yeah, I think what was interesting and the way we started to think about these direct healthcare arrangement, it it really holds up a mirror to the status quo in healthcare. And it starts to realize how not patient focused our current healthcare system is. And so when you kind of cut away all of that noise, when you cut away all of that paperwork, when you cut away all of the layers of bureaucracy, it allows these providers to actually practice medicine in a way that may be quote unquote counterintuitive for less and for more. You pay less and get more, um, interestingly enough. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, our paper found that uh, patients, access is a massive issue here in Massachusetts, you know, survey data by the Massachusetts Medical Society in the past. So the average wait times were typically 50, 60, 70 days before you could get an appointment for certain kinds of providers. Um, if you sign up with a direct healthcare Uh, provider, typically you can get an appointment the next day at the latest, typically is what we heard over and over again. Uh, We heard story after story of a patient texting a provider and them calling them when there was an emergency to help them navigate the healthcare system, or when they needed specialty care that did exceed what the primary care provider could provide in a direct primary care arrangement. They then partnered with the specialist to help them navigate what was the best course of action for that patient going forward because that provider had known that patient so well. They know their medical needs. They know their goals because they had spent so much time with them previously. They truly were an advocate to help navigate the healthcare system, saving patients thousands and thousands of dollars of unnecessary services, which given some of the uh, rates that we just discussed, if you just avoid the emergency room once, by having a relationship with a provider who knows your medical needs and is help, able to help you with stitches in their office, for instance, you've paid for your monthly or yearly service for years if you're able just to avoid one unavoidable emergency room visit. And we heard those stories over and over again as we did research for this paper. Yes, that, that research resonated with me. I, I was uh, struck by uh, the fact that direct primary care physicians uh, provided their cell phone to their patients. Um, avoiding the, the emergency room not long ago, I thought I was having an, a heart attack. It turned out to be a bad case of uh, acid reflux, but um, uh, that was a visit to Mass General that uh, was uh, quite expensive. Uh, it would have been nice to have had uh, my doctor uh, be able to reassure me uh, with something I ate. Um, sure. So uh, moving on, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, primary health. Um, what about those adjacent uh, uh, relations we have with medical communities, not just primary care, but with um, mental health uh, or physical therapy or, or even dentistry? It, are there other relationships that are either ad- adjacent attached to my primary care or are they independent relationships I have with my, you know, I have my, my, my dentist on speed dial, my physical therapist on speed dial. How does this all work? Yeah, I mean, right now, by far, the most dominant relationships that we see in the market are with direct primary care doctors. 
But I think what people are coming to realize is that there's a whole potential opportunity here to move beyond primary care to have these relationships. The way it's set up now is typically it's for just ancillary services like blood work and labs and scans that the primary care doctor will make sure that they have relationships if they don't do it in-house. But moving forward, five years from now, 10 years from now, I think it is very conceivable in which you a patient has a direct primary care relationship if they want for mental health purposes to have a direct relationship with their therapist to be able to see them on a regular basis or have more frequent visits by being able to pay them a monthly fee instead of having to pay them every single time they show up or interact with a provider, you could have one there. Uh, you could imagine somebody with diabetes who maybe needs an endocrinologist to help with their care entering into one of these direct relationships so that they have ongoing maintenance and a higher touch. So both for those who have chronic conditions and need just need a little bit more high touch work, or for those that benefit from more regular communication in a direct relationship. And that doesn't have to be somebody who's sick, could be somebody who's looking for preventative services to make sure they don't end up in the yard. I think there is a future here that we're trying to paint the picture in which you could have a few different relationships. And the way you pay for this is you have an insurance plan that is truly for catastrophic events. You don't have an insurance plan that's prepaid medical care, which is kind of how we think about it. We, we pay for very generous insurance in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, we're the second highest health insurance premiums. Research from the Health Policy Commission has said for every additional dollar a worker earns in Massachusetts, 39 cents will go to health care of that dollar. And it's, it's projected to get worse. So clearly something has to change here. And so I think that looking at these sorts of innovations in which you're able to have these direct relationships and then have a umbrella health policy that is truly for catastrophic events is a much more affordable way to do this and helps pay for these direct services as a result. And pure price transparency. There's no unexpected costs because of the direct relationships. You know exactly what's included. There's no surprise bills. There's no, oh, I'm going to wait three months to see what my bill is going to be. You know what it is upfront and you're paying it every month in these very affordable rates. So um, again, I'm maybe stuck in the old insurance world, but we're not, this doesn't obviate the need for um, insurance, but rather it creates, forgive me for the analogy, but almost like our car, right? We, we have a car insurance for a wreck. We don't use insurance to fill it with gas or new wiper blades or new tires. Uh, it's when something unexpected and bad happens. That's essentially what's, what this model reflects. Yeah, it, it's trying to move in that direction. And, you know, there's a long history here why we have the current system that we do and the federal government's involvement and tax preference. This starts to at least align the incentives so that providers aren't over utilizing services or that hospitals aren't chasing revenue. It's really about the patient provider relationship and what is the best care for them. You touched uh, briefly, and I want to go more deeply on this notion of price transparency. Of course, I think what you meant is I know what I'm going to pay when I go show up at my doctor. That's that's terrific. Uh, but beyond that, um, your paper goes into the fact that uh, when you are making uh, choices based on cost, um, your uh, direct primary care physician can let you know what those procedures and what those medicines are apt to cost. And you know, arguably, they're much less. But again, you can make a decision whether uh, that procedure or that drug provides value. Can you say more about price transparency? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two forms of price transparency that emerge from these sorts of models. The first one is just for that 80% of what the average patient needs for primary care, for example, 
but that's covered. You know, it's going to be covered for you know $80 a couple or $100 for family or whatever the pricing structure is for these different providers. So there's no kind of nicky nacky nickel and diming happening um, where you're just getting extra things because they're trying to increase their revenues. That, that goes away. But the second form of it certainly comes in, let's say you go see a direct primary care doctor and they say, you know what, we'd like to get you some, uh, a CT scan. You know, that's something that we think is necessary. You know, in the paper, we cover that there are, this is regularly examples where CT scans can turn anywhere from $5,000 to $11,000. And we know in Massachusetts and Pioneer's research in the past has shown that where you park your car makes a tremendous difference how much you end up paying for that, those things, for the same thing. But with CT scans with a direct primary care provider, they typically, and we cover this in the paper, you know, $11,000 in one example for a CT scan under traditional insurance, $185 for this direct primary care provider that we, that we talk through. Or just think about, we talked about drugs a little bit, for instance, uh, we have a, a table in here that looks at, I think it's seven or eight different, very common places where you can get your drugs, Costco, Sam's Club, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS. And then we compare it to what a direct primary care provider typically gets for those drugs. So maybe CVS or Target be $200, $300 for certain kinds of diabetes drugs or others, $4 through the direct primary care doctor. So not only do you know what it's gonna cost because they have these direct relationships to access drugs at basically wholesale prices, but significantly different uh, different prices. And so it's not just that you know it, it's actually you can afford it. Whereas right now in our system, we typically don't know it ahead of time and then it's unaffordable when we actually end up getting the bill. And what I'm excited about those price signals will help encourage uh, those uh, drugs and those procedures to uh, come down in price, right? And now they're now they want your business and they want to make it uh, attractive and affordable. Um, one area of healthcare uh, analysis that I rarely see studied is uh, something you touched on on your paper as well. It's it's doctor burnout, which is to say uh, the modern doctors. I have uh, several friends who are primary care physicians. Uh, they characterize their uh, their work uh, experience almost like being a hamster on a treadmill, and and the most frustrating for that thing for them is they got into medicine because they want to know their patients and heal their patients, and they feel like they're very disconnected. Your paper mentions that this new model, direct primary care physicians, seem to really enjoy this model far more as a matter of of uh, job satisfaction. Can you say more about this? Yeah, and it's something that we heard over and over again for. Uh, providers who had practiced in the status quo or current healthcare system and then had made this switch to the direct healthcare arrangement, they frequently said, this is exactly, I'm able to practice medicine the way I wanted to when I went into this. Um, and, you know, if you look at any, there's any number of surveys out there about provider burnout. I mean, I've seen anywhere 80% of providers regularly feel burnt out. Um, they feel like they have to spend too much time on paperwork, not enough time with their patients, that administrators are making care decisions over their judgments uh, for what they think is best for patients. And, and I think what we are concerned about is not only the retiring uh, generation of providers, in particular in primary care, where we don't have enough primary care doctors to begin with, um, the burnout rate is very high. And so you're seeing people leave the profession in their late 30s or 40s when we would hope that they would be around for another 20 or 30 years practicing medicine. What we have heard from a number of these providers are, I was going to quit. 
I found out about these direct healthcare arrangements. I made the switch. I am now going to practice medicine till I retire this way. Um, and so I think that that speaks to the way they get to practice medicine in under this model. It speaks to their job satisfaction. And the Physician Foundation has done some survey work on this, showing that those that are in these arrangements have by far the highest job satisfaction compared to their peers in the traditional healthcare system. And that's why I think we hear both patients and providers say these are win-wins for them. It's just not, they're not widely, as widely utilized or known about. And that's part of the reason we wanted to write the papers to say, hey, the, this alternative is out there and people should really be taking a close look at it as an alternative to the status quo. Yeah, I, 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 that's very exciting. I'll just uh, draw one uh, quotation from uh, the case study you had in your paper. Uh, Dr. Parker, who switched from the traditional model to primary, direct primary care, uh, she quotes uh, uh, the process as being, quote, everything that patients want, and it's everything a caring physician aspiring to practice medicine dreams of doing. Uh, that's a rave, and uh, so a very, very powerful statement. Um, let me try to uh, play a little bit of uh, devil's advocate and try to see, you know, pick apart what where the, where the bugs might be. Um, we've got a population where some people are healthy and some people are less healthy. Uh, does this system uh, select for people who are less apt to call their doctor, uh, less apt to take you know, advantage and utilize a system that effectively is a subscription model where you can see your physician as often as you like? Wouldn't that in a sense discourage or physicians discourage high use patients in favor of healthier, perhaps younger um, patients? Uh, is there any concern about this? Yeah, there certainly is. And individuals raise this as a concern about these models to say, will there be quote unquote cherry picking? Will they only accept young, healthy people? And I think what we have found is that a uh, couple of things. One, uh, when you look at state laws around the country, they explicitly say that people can't be turned away because of their health status, um, unless the provider deems themselves not the appropriate person to take care of the patient. Um, and I think we would want that for any provider. If I'm not the right provider, then I need to make tell you that and not provide you subpar care. Um, but I will say this, that in these experiences where they actually have been the most successful, where they've saved the most money is when it, they work directly with the sickest patients. And so there are examples in which these sorts of arrangements have been set up for uh, union plumbers or other union workers. Uh, don't aren't always the healthiest individuals, tend to be on the older side. And so some of the research that's been done looking at avoiding emergency room visits, managing diabetes, uh, smoking cessation, because these providers are able to spend more time with their patients, they're able to develop a little bit better, better rapport. And typically it leads to better management of those chronic conditions. And so Actually, the opposite is true. Those that benefit the most are the sickest, and these providers who went into medicine to try to help people are actually drawn to work with a lot of those patients because the potential benefit, if you will, is so great. And so when we talked to uh, providers about that, they said, first of all, we will take any patient that comes to us if we're the appropriate provider. But then they also get the most excited about the potential upside of working with these patients who have been let down by the status quo system in which they can really develop a good relationship and see any significant improvement of health with these individuals who are the sickest. With that being said, young, healthy people can benefit from the relationship too, just because access is such a problem and finding a primary care doctor who you can spend an hour with and set health goals and talk about nutrition and all these things that your other provider probably doesn't have time to talk to you about. 
people are drawn to it just because of that relationship building that comes as well. So, Josh, all of this would have been true uh, last February before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we now have uh, uh, an, nearly an entire year to reflect on how the relative systems fared during the crisis of, of COVID-19. Um, can you say something about how uh, our traditional systems worked and how direct primary care fared uh, in the same time period with a very, very different model? You know, I, Joe, I think this is a little bit of the untold story of the pandemic in the medical world. Um, and part of it is because there just aren't as many of these providers out there um, to tell this story. But when we talk to individuals, yes, maybe in some cases their offices were closed like others, but the care didn't stop. You know, the, these providers were already using telehealth. These providers were already texting and emailing and in regular contact with their patients before all of this. And so really it just shifted, you know, it shifted even more in that direction. So while a number of providers were put, you know, basically out of a job for a few months as hospitals tried to scramble and figure out how to set up systems that would keep everybody safe, these providers continued to offer care like they had been for years before. And so they were able to, it wasn't even, they had to pivot. They were already doing it uh, for them. And because they're smaller practices, some of those issues, they were able to open a little bit earlier. Some of them were providing care in parking lots if they had to, if they actually had to go see somebody in person. But also from the provider standpoint, they didn't see this massive dip in revenue because they are on these monthly uh, fees or what, you know contracts with their patients. It was the same for them. They, were, they weren't in dire uh, straits concerned that their doors were going to close the next door. They were able to just focus on patient care. And I think that is a real big difference from all of the scrambling and continued scrambling, quite frankly, we see at times from the healthcare system trying to figure out, hey, is insurance going to pay for this? Should we offer this? How, how do we set this up? How do we keep everybody safe? These, these providers, direct healthcare providers, by and large, were able to continue to provide the high level of service that they were before the pandemic and have continued to be able to do so during the pandemic. So um, our, our show has illustrated the fact that um, primary health primary healthcare is cheaper. It's uh, better healthcare, uh, and as you say, it's now more reliable even during a uh, once in a century pandemic. So uh, the question that begs to be asked is, why isn't the uptake of this alternative accelerating? Why why aren't we all scrambling and, and running uh, toward direct primary care? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. It feels like an onion where you have to peel away a few layers to get there. Um, there's a couple reasons why I think. You know, the first one is, and people are often surprised to learn this, but under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, there's actually a provision that allows for health insurance to wrap around these kinds of agreements. But here's the problem. No insurance company has really stepped forward to do that. And so if I'm a small business or even an individual, if I can't find a health insurance product that easily wraps around these products, then I think most people feel like they're overpaying for, for services. And so I, I'm hopeful that some insurance company will step forward and move that. Now, with that being said, some have small companies or even larger companies that are, have a little bit more flexibility have stepped forward to set these up. And I think there is a growing awareness you know, those statistics about 40 cents of every dollar earned is going towards healthcare. I mean, we simply can't afford 
that if we continue to grow going forward. I've seen estimates where millennials are projected for 50 cents of every dollar will go to healthcare over their lifetime. I mean, we can't sustain that. And so I think it's inevitable that we're going to see a growing interest in these sorts of arrangements. And it typically starts with large companies and they're starting to look at it. So there's a little bit of an education gap that exists at some of those large companies for more of them to move into this direction so that there's a little bit more scale to do this. And then small companies are then able to step into the infrastructure to be able to utilize those. Now, what we suggested in the paper is a few things to try to get that scale uh, to scale faster. And the first one is looking to state policymakers and saying, you have a couple levers in front of you that you can look at related to direct healthcare arrangements. The first one is the group insurance commission. That's for state and some local employees. It's a large group of individuals. It's statewide. And so if GIC was to step forward and say, this is a model that we see a tremendous amount of benefit in, we want to move in this direction, even if it's a pilot, then they have the scale to be able to draw providers into this relationship because they now know they're having a meaningful amount of patients to be able to come to them quickly. The other one is mass health or Medicaid. You know, a lot of, uh, they call them dual eligibles, older people, folks that are on multiple programs, they have a lot of chronic conditions typically. And so for that population in particular, there's a real opportunity to step forward and partner with a few organizations who already do this and put individuals who want to opt into these programs forward and you'll save a ton of money in the process. And so I think there's an opportunity there for employers to do this, but there's also an opportunity for the state to take a hard look at these models. And as they have said for years, primary care is important, yet they haven't really set in place or put their money where their mouth is when it comes to the programs and the tax dollars that we're putting forward for GIC or, or MassHealth. Now, Josh, you, you did uh, describe uh, the likely first movers uh, that are going to get the direct primary care um, uh, movement going. Uh, but in your paper, you did mention a, a few uh, specific examples of savings. In particular, I, I noticed uh, superior packaging here in Braintree uh, saved substantial money in this migration towards uh, direct primary care. Can you give us some dimensions, some numbers? How much can a, a small or medium-sized firm save by moving from the traditional model to direct primary care? Yeah, superior, I think, like many small companies, were just frustrated with the increasing uh, cost of healthcare every single year. So when they moved a few years ago, they they saved three hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year, and so that translated into about four thousand three hundred dollars per employee who was enrolled in their health plan. And they moved to a direct healthcare model, and then they actually decided to self-insure, which means that they're paying more of the bills for their health, the cost of their healthcare for their employees than they would um, if they were contracting with an insurance company to hold the risk. So we're not talking small dollars. There really is an enormous opportunity. Interestingly, the CEO was quoted as saying that he felt like his the feedback he heard from his employers was not only were they happy to have a better relationship with the provider, but they were able to better navigate the greater healthcare system because of their relationship with their direct primary care doctor. So many benefits here, not just saving dollars, but also on the relationship side. Sure. I think the dollar savings for a firm like that always gets the press, but the fact that their employees are happier, that's really, I'm sure, what the what a business owner wants to hear, right? Uh, you get you pay less, but, but get more uh, benefit. That's absolutely right. And and the, the trend before this, uh, most companies have been employees, you're going to pay more and you're going to get less. So this really, anytime there's been a change, employees have been hesitant in the past. 
But I think this shows a new way, a new pathway for people to be able to have a better value proposition when they make that change. You uh, mentioned a lot of different organizations, but uh, none that seem directly accountable to uh, the people perhaps listening to our show. Uh, our listeners are advocates for change and for better policy. Uh, what what can uh, listeners do to uh, help reform? Is it, this seems like something that uh, policymakers behind closed doors will hash out. Um, what what can uh, people who are excited about what we've described do to um, make this happen? Yeah, I think you know there's a few few things. One's some personal ones, and one are maybe a little bit broader. The first one is if if you're interested in this model, it, you you can just Google direct. I mean, please read our report. We'd we'd love any. Thoughts on that, but you give, can give a plug for it. You know, the pioneer is it uh, the name of your paper? I think I mentioned it in the uh, intro. Um, Direct healthcare agreements: a new option for patient-centered care that costs less and reduces provider burnout. So you certainly read that, but there's resources online to find practices that are practicing in this way. And so just googling direct primary care uh, near me or something like that and finding there's there's maps that you can find that have providers online. So if this is a personal interest to individuals, you can reach out, see who's around me that's practicing this way. The other one is if you work for a small business, uh, you should absolutely approach the CEO or the HR person, whoever works on healthcare and say, hey, this is something that I've learned about. And I'd be very interested for our company to explore this. And most small companies work with a health insurance broker and to talk to the health insurance broker I'm aware of individuals who have worked with their small business folks, and they have set up these direct arrangements. And there's tax advantage ways, not going into all the acronyms, but you can put some money away to help patients pay for the monthly uh, subscription. And then they can change their health insurance plan designs and maybe even pay them a little bit more because they've saved money as a result of this. So there's opportunities here going forward, putting aside the state action that could be taken on this. But the only way that this model is really going to grow is individual patients or small companies or some of these large companies, like I mentioned, start moving in this direction, saying this is something that we're interested in. And as a result, you'll start to see more insurance companies, I think, step forward and design products around them because they finally will see that there's a strong demand for them. As of right now, I think the insurance companies have just played it safe and said, we're going to do what we've always done. We're not necessarily interested in exploring these innovative models at the moment. But I think if there's actual starts to be organic demand from the ground up, which we have started to see slow incremental increase in demand, then I'm optimistic in 10 years from now, there will be a healthy, robust version of this in Massachusetts. It probably should come as a surprise to no one on the show that um, insurance companies who are now, as you described, getting 30 marginally, 39 uh, cents out of every new marginal dollar, why would they want to reform such a system? Uh, that sounds like it's working well for them, that real reform will come from individuals asking their benefits providers for a new alternative and those businesses looking to the insurance companies to demand an alternative to the traditional model. Is that about right? Yeah, I, I think that's where it is because patients or individuals are often so disconnected from their relationship with their provider. It's time for them to reassert themselves and say, nope, not only for cost savings, but actually for my health. I want to have a, a better, more direct connection with my provider, make sure the incentives are properly aligned to what's best for my care, not what's best for the bottom line of other players in the market. That's what's eventually going to drive this change. 
Well, that's, that's great. That's a great way to uh, end our show. Uh, I think we've uh, covered this very thoroughly. And I find it fascinating. And I think it really uh, is the way forward to, uh, to uh, moving past this very, very expensive system that we have. I think um, uh, this is a, a, an important topic. And I'm glad to, to cover it with you. Thank you for being on Hubwonk today, Josh. I appreciate your, your time. Thanks so much, Joe. Enjoyed the conversation. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk. It would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a kind review. If you have ideas for future episodes or suggestions for me or comments, you're welcome to reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.